All disease begins in the butt, in the gut, and not in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) All disease begins in the butt. Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast with Tom Underwood. Armed with truth and knowledge, your journey to a healthy lifestyle can be obtained. Preventative wellness, quality nourishment, and daily fitness routines dramatically improve your outlook on life as a whole. And you'll find the support and info you need to accomplish a healthier lifestyle here. Together, we can empower each other along our journey to an amazing you. All right. Welcome back to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast, part three with Deborah Beaumont. And we are going to do part three is going to involve now what? You've been diagnosed with cancer. Deborah specializes in treating women that have gone through cancer treatments and are struggling to uh, find where they, if, if, if they're gonna, they worry about it, if they're going to get it back, what they're doing. And I'll let her explain a little bit more. But once you get treated, you pretty much dropped off the face of the earth. Am I correct, Deborah? Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me back. And um, yeah, this is an area that that I am very passionate about because I, I believe in the whole area of cancer management. And rightly so. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. And, you know, people are thrown into a very intense, overwhelming experience in their lives. You know, when they're struggling with cancer, figuring out the treatment, you know, appointments and procedures, and um, there's a lot going on. And all of those interventions have, take a toll. And then you get to the point where you're told, okay, well, your treatments are over. You don't need, you know, chemo or, or uh, radiation. You know, your treatment is over. And then unfortunately in our system, our system is very much geared towards managing the disease. Well, when the disease is under control or, or however you want to phrase that, all of a sudden women are told, okay, now go out and hope you're well and come back in a few months and take these prescriptions. And then they're sent off to, you know, kind of figure out what to do next. It's like, I honestly believe that that's really a very vulnerable time and a time where you need a lot of support and a time when, when implementing lifestyle changes can make a huge difference in, in your recovery and not to mention your chances of, of eventual recurrence, which is what every cancer patient lives with every day. But there's just not a lot of support. It's like you're out of the active treatment mode and it's like, okay, now go forth and be well and you're not well. Just because treatment is over, you know, there's a lot of side effects to any of the treatments that women have gone through, you know, fatigue and um, exhaustion and hormonal changes and emotional issues and depression and anxiety and isolation. And, you know, there's uh, peripheral neuropathy. There's their brain fog is one of the biggest things I hear women complaining of. All of these are understandable and normal side effects of treatment, but we, but the traditional medical world doesn't really, A, even acknowledge it, but, but B, doesn't really have a lot to offer to help you resolve those, those symptoms. And, you know, I mean, just brain fog in and of itself is a debilitating side effect. It is not, oh yeah, I just, you know, forgot where I put my keys. It is a debilitating, life-changing problem that women 
live with and and can really affect their their quality of life. And so the more we can do to, you know, help educate and help women understand what they can do to get their health back, you know, to feel vibrant, to feel energetic, to feel alive again. I mean, I, I think there's a huge opportunity there. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about working at this stage of, of the whole cancer journey. Okay. Now, as functional medicine practitioners, which we both are, how do we support this whole process? How can we support this? How can, where do we go with suggestions as far as, uh, let's just dig into what, what do we do? I mean, diet's important. There's supplementations that's important. The basic need for the little things like stress prevention, stress relief, uh, relationships, healthy relationships. And that's what we do. I mean, you and I both help you with your food choices, your supplementation, stress release, sleep. Sleep's a biggie. You know, where, where do we tell, to tell the listeners where, I mean, let's go there and talk about what are some of the things or points that we can do to help these people that have gone through this. And I mean, I know that I have recommended some supplements to some of the people that are close to me in my life. I've, I've recommended Cucurman for one, just because I, I don't, Cucurman is a you know, phytonutrient that's found in turmeric, but it, it is, it's a huge anti-inflammatory. And when you're going through any of these things, Cucurman should be on the list of things to be taking. Absolutely, yeah. My current thinking is curcumin is a, like a, it's like a magic supplement. I mean, I, I, I recommend it for, I think, everyone for one reason I, or I another. I take it every day just because of my muscle fatigue from working out or, right. you know, I'm getting old. I'm not, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I got my joints ache sometimes and, you know, so I take curcumin on a regular basis, not just because of, of that, but also because it's a fact, the fact that it's a huge anti-inflammatory for your body. Right. Right. So, and I've recommended curcumin to a couple of people there in my life that are going through chemotherapy and radiation and their doctors were like, no. And so I think it kind of bothers me because you and I both know curcumin or curcumin or however you want to pronounce it. I call it curcumin, but is it's like it's curcumin, right? Yeah, yeah. You're just from the south. It's just yeah. your accent coming out. <laughs> I'm actually from Michigan, but I think my southern. I'm like I'm starting to get the southern slang. I've been here so long. But when they said no, don't take it. I'm like, what? It, I don't. You know. So. Well, that's a really interesting thing. Let me let me speak to that for a minute because this is this is probably. Uh, this is pervasive. So um, my background is that I am I am a registered nurse. I'm a I'm an advanced practice nurse by training. I was an ICU nurse for most of my career for over 40 years. Um, so I'm I'm very well steeped in the medical world and that thinking and how they approach things. My uh, what happened is is that I got breast cancer. However, it was afterwards. You know when I was actually you know I was sitting in my oncologist's office. It was a couple years after my active treatment had done, had, had finished. 
And I, I said to her, you know, she was like, well, you know, come back in a year here. You know, they have me on this 10-year hormone blocking medication plan. <laughs> come back in a year. Um, we'll make sure that, that you know, uh, you don't have any elevated tumor markers and make sure that the cancer's not back. And I was like, okay, well, what, what do I do before then? What, what do I do to, to know whether or not it's coming back? What do I do to prevent it from coming back? I don't want to just wait until the tumor markers start showing up that, you know, that there's a disease process back. What do I do now? And she's like, well, you know, that's really our, our plan. Just, you know, take these meds, come back in a year. And all we can do is just do surveillance and make sure it doesn't come back. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, it's like, you don't have anything more to offer. You know, it, and, and so that's what really prompted me to really just, you know, start looking at this in my own life, you know, really start digging into it to find out, you know, that whole sense that we're helpless in the face of this disease. For one thing, I really, if there's anything that I want women to understand is that they are not helpless. You know, there is so much we can do to for our health, for our overall health. You know, many of the factors that play a key role in cancer are the factors that play a role in illness. It comes down to our very poor, nutrient-poor diet. And the very same things that predis you know, that that are creating an unhealthy microenvironment, if you want to call it that, an unhealthy uh, balance in the body that predisposes us to the fact that cancer can thrive in that kind of environment also predisposes us to diabetes and hypertension and a lot, whole slew of other health problems. So the fact is, is there's a lot we can do to take control of our health, you know, to, you know, to create as healthy a body as we can so that, that cancer doesn't have the opportunity to thrive and grow. You know, and that's where I focus a lot of my work. Um, not to mention, I just want to really empower women. I, I can't imagine a more um, disempowering process than going through cancer treatment. I mean, imagine, you know, you go in, you think you're fine. However, you figured out that you have cancer, you know, you think you're fine. You go in for a mammogram or you go in for testing or you feel a lump. So you go from literally one day feeling like your normal self to the next day being told you have cancer. Oh, and, and, oh, by the way, now here's the plan. You know, you're going to go through, you know, uh, surgery and chemotherapy and all these treatments that are going to make you feel like crap. Excuse my language. You know, it's going to make you feel like crap. It's going to disfigure your body. You know, it's, you go through this whole thing and you're never, you know, there's no locus of control there for the patient. My chemotherapy, my um, oncologist, when he came in and told me, you know, he, they didn't think I was going to need chemo. And then they, you know, they did, you know, a, a, a biopsy and lymph node resection. And then he comes in and he's like, nope, you know, four rounds of chemo, no questions asked. And I was like, I, I have a lot of questions, you know, but that, but the attitude is, it's like, you lose control of your life. You lose control of your health. And all of a sudden, you know, and, and the Trump card is every time you ask a question, like, what about this? The attitude is, is, no, you've got cancer. We have to do this. And, and I think, and I bring that up because this mentality of doctors, well, for one thing, let me just tell anybody who's listening, an, an average doctor who's not a chemotherapist or, or a, an oncologist or a chemo doctor or a radiation oncologist is just as overwhelmed by cancer as the average person. They, 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 
they they don't you know they may know some basics about it but they don't know what to do and they're afraid they're not going to get in the way of of an of of this cancer management it, it scares them too so then when someone goes in and they want to you know they they want to take a supplement or they they there's they want to try something different they may not know anything about that supplement but they're just not you know but but their attitude is i don't know about it so no don't take it it's not they're not always coming from an informed place and doctors are not trained in uh, nutrition, in supplements, uh, that's just not their area of training. And and so I've I've actually I had a a, a patient come to me recently that she uh, she was seeing a a naturopath. She was on some um, supplements and some treatments in that modality. And then she was in chemo. She got her second round of chemo and had uh, an allergic reaction to the chemo. Hmm. The oncologist immediate response was, oh, this is because of all the supplements you were taking. Mm. She had just received chemotherapy. One might think it might be related to <laughs> chemotherapy. <laughs> yeah. And then she goes to the naturopath and the naturopath says, no, it's the chemotherapy. You know, and so the, the, the oncologist basically told her, well, stop taking everything. I don't want you taking anything except what I'm comfortable with, which was the chemotherapy. And, you know, and I, and I think that the, the biggest crime in that, regardless of, of what caused it, because obviously no one knew what caused it, um, other than the fact that we know that these drugs are powerful and caustic and can have these reactions. Um, this woman was put in the middle. You know, all she wanted to do was, all she was trying to do was, you know, figure out something that was going to make her better and save her life. And then all of a sudden the practitioners are like fighting over her and she has to explain one modality to the other. And it's like, that's, that's the problem is that, is that it's so sharply divided. And what I believe is there's, there's room for both. You know, I, as I said, I'm a nurse and I am a functional medicine practitioner. So I am always trying to bridge those two worlds. You know, and and the fact is, is that I don't think it's one or the other. And there are a lot of supplements and uh, what is considered integrative interventions that have that have been proven to be helpful in the treatment of cancer. It's just that Western medicine doctors don't think that way, and they are not necessarily open to that. So I do want to kind of warn people that as you, if you are asking these questions and learning more, you may not be supported by your doctor because they, they, depending on, on, on their particular viewpoint. So sometimes you have to shop around and find a doctor who's willing to work with you. And there are oncologists out there that are, are open to it. There, there are, there are actually integrative oncology specialists, which right. is actually who I found after my last experience with that doctor. That was the last time I ever saw her. I'm like, you know, if you have nothing more to offer me, then I'll find somebody who does. Right. So let's talk about some of the things that we can do and yourself can do. I, this is not my specialty, but yours. But some of these are just basically for any disease, which I do more disease work than cancer patients. But one of them is your vitamin D levels. What do we do? Some of this is important stuff of how we can support somebody that's been through this or is going through it. And vitamin D is, is I've talked on numerous podcasts is very important that it should, that you, you need to ensure, you know, that your immune system and you need to 
boost your immune, stabilize your immune system with vitamin D. And what are the levels, what are the optimal levels or what are we looking for in the optimal vitamin D levels? Now, this is really interesting um, in terms of vitamin D because actually I first learned about vitamin D and its role in breast cancer from my very traditional oncologist. Oh, really? That didn't come from um, an alternative medicine practitioner. She was like, no, we need your vitamin D levels up. And to tell you the truth, vitamin D, most doctors have gotten the memo matters. You know, they, right. they're really finding, well, for one thing, for anybody who hasn't heard one of us talk, vitamin D is not a vitamin, it's a hormone. Right. And, and, and it works in the body to uh, stimulate other processes in the body. So it's not so much of a vitamin as, a, as an essential hormone to make sure that, that your body is actually working well. So in terms of vitamin D, doctors have heard about this because this has been kind of, you know, a hot topic in medicine for a while now. But what I find is that they don't get the fact that the level matters. So it is a known fact that high levels of vitamin D, which vitamin D is, a, is something you can test in your blood. So you don't have to guess what your vitamin D level is. It's a simple blood test that any doctor can order and, and should be ordering on just about everybody. Yeah, now, I live in Hawaii, and I can tell you that, uh, that in terms of vitamin D, vitamin D is normally synthesized through the skin. So if you're in an area where you get a lot of sunlight, you tend to have better vitamin D levels. But there's a lot of things that interfere with that. So even in Hawaii, where we get sun all the time year round, most people are deficient in vitamin D. If you live anyplace else, you know, that doesn't get that kind of sun, you're, you're 99% sure to probably be deficient in vitamin D, particularly in the winter. So it's, it's a crucial thing for everybody to know about. That's another thing you just said that and I want to put it. You can get your test results yourself. You can ask them. Exactly. I want a copy of my test results. Right. You know, if you're a Kaiser patient, I, um, Kaiser, you can, they've got a portal. And you go on the portal and you can pull up your lab results. But anybody should have their lab results. They, they, no one should ever just get from their, your doctor, oh, your labs are fine. You know, come back and see me in right. six months. Everyone should know what their numbers are. All right. Since we talked about D, let's go to B. <laughs> B complex vitamins to support methylation. I'm going to let you go with that for methylation in the, in the B-complex vitamin. Well, this is actually, this is another thing I've been actually talking on this week. I don't know if this is true or not because I don't really follow her, but in the last week, I think Gwyneth Paltrow, she does, she's got some goop is her thing. I don't know if it's a company or whatever, but she came out with a magazine and she kind of like drives me a little nuts, you know, because, um, that's one of those situations where there's a whole lot of information out there and it may or may not be helpful or even safe. And um, so this whole question about B vitamins and methylation is, is one of those things. I, have, I get this from patients all the time, especially after they've gone through chemo, but just in general. You know, uh, the hot topic in health right now, the hot, sexy, crazy topic is detox. Oh, let's all detox, you know, and, right. and it's a hot, sexy topic. Well, I can tell you, that um, I'm not a big fan of like generic detoxes. There is a time and a place to do a specific kind of detox. But the fact is, is it's not just something that anybody should be doing because somebody told them to read a magazine article about detox. Because uh, the fact is, is that 
is that detox can actually make you sicker. Detox can actually hurt you if it's not done correctly and if it's not done at the right time. And I bring this up because you can imagine after women have gone through this very intense and caustic chemotherapy process, the first thing they think they need to do is detox, you know, to get all these, you know, toxins out of their body. And at a certain level, that sounds really sexy. And you're like, yeah, detox. Well, I'll just tell you a story of, of a woman that I was dealing with recently going back to breast implant illness. She called me for a consult. She was she was, she's, uh, was not stable. She was actually very symptomatic from the breast, uh, to, uh, the silicone toxicity. She went to a practitioner and they said, oh, well, you need to detox and gave her a couple of very common detox um, ingredients. She wound up in the emergency room four hours later with a near psychotic anxiety attack. Wow. Um, and she was, she was like, she was tacky. You know, her heart rate was off the charts. Her blood pressure was off the charts. She felt like bugs were crawling in her body. I mean, she was having a horrible reaction because, you know, essentially what she had done was, you know, mobilize these toxins, you know, to try to detox, but she wasn't physically stable enough to handle that kind of um, burden on her body. She was already, she was just trying to be you know, to have a baseline of being healthy. She wasn't in a place to actively detox. Detoxing is actually a stress on the body. So there may be a time and place to detox, but everybody should, you know, it's just not something that everyone should do whenever someone tells them, oh, well, you need to detox. And I bring that up because it really plays into B vitamins. The role of B vitamins, B vitamins do a lot of things for us. It helps with our, you know, it, it helps with essential nutrients um, and in our body. And B vitamins are really great. But one of the main things that B vitamins do is that it supports our body's natural detoxification. And so, you know, toxins are coming in through um, through pesticides, through through uh, poor quality food, through hormones, through antibiotics that are being um, put into our food supply. Uh, so, one of the first things people can do is just start eating um, a, a more vegetable, plant based uh, diet. You know, like like seventy five percent of your diet being uh, green cruciferous vegetables, like broccoli and cabbage and uh, Brussels sprouts. All of those vegetables have natural substances in them that help us detoxify. B vitamins are another thing that we can do that help us detoxify. Making sure we're drinking enough so that we're peeing well and making sure that you're pooping every day are essential. You know, so that's one of the ways that we detoxify. I believe that most of my patients need to be supported with B vitamins. But I even that I tend to start very slowly because if someone has not been detoxifying well and they start taking a high dose of B vitamins, exactly. they can have a really unpleasant reaction. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So it's one of those things that that is really important, but it's really important to do it in an, in an intelligent way right. so that you're not going to get sicker in the process. Well, I, I mean, to your point, eating a typical standard American diet will result in standard chronic illness. Exactly. So, I, yeah. And exactly. also, and also, you know, cancer can't grow in a healthy body. The body has to be diseased and tired and toxic in order for cancer to develop in the first place. I think, 
I think that's the biggest shift in um, in the thinking around cancer that that has happened as a result of of, ta- of this integrative cancer approach is really taking cancer from this big, scary mystery. Oh my God, is it going to happen to me? Kind of like you know, doom place to understanding cancer as as a metabolic process right. that needs certain factors to grow and thrive. You know, um, the the as we talked about the last time, the sharp increase in cancer, particularly breast cancer, but but um, cancer in general, I think has a lot to do with the fact that we're exposed to unprecedented amounts of toxins that we were never exposed to before, and we're exposed to them at earlier stages in our lives. So you know. Once again, going back to the basics of cancer, cancer is not something that you develop in the last six months. It is estimated that the average cancer, by the time it's detected, has been growing for 10 to 20 years. So it's a slow growing process. And then there comes the day when you have a symptom that you can identify and then you're diagnosed with cancer. So, you know, it's not, you know, what happened in the last six months that I got cancer. It's like, what's been happening in the last 10 years? And so there are a lot of factors there that, like you said, creating um, an environment where cancer cannot thrive. You know, cancer is a process of, it, it takes on a life form of its own, but cancer cells have gotten to the point where they're not following the same messaging system that, that healthy cells follow. Um, so there are certain things that cancer cells need in order to like create their own little colony, which is what they're doing. They're operating different from the rest of the cells in your body that are all programmed, you know, to act in a certain way. And cancer cells get to a point where it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to set up my own process here. Right. And so if you understand what some of those processes are, it can really give you an idea of some of the things you can do to prevent cancer from being able to take place. Two of the, you know, we've talked about nutrition. You know, cancer cells are not, cancer cells are really like nasty bullies on the playground. (laughs) You know, they're really aggressive, but they're not, and they are pretty smart actually, but they're not really efficient. You know, they, um, the mitochondria, which is, you know, the part of our cells that, that, uh, generates energy are not particularly efficient in cancer cells. You know, um, they, they have to, um, they have to find a way to grow outside of the normal pathway. So cancer cells, because they grow so aggressively, very quickly can outgrow their energy source. So in order for cells to grow in our body, they need oxygen and they need blood, a blood supply. Cancer cells grow so quickly that they can outgrow both of those pretty quickly. So what happens is that the cancer cell can change and what it does is it develops a lot more receptors on the surface of the cell, um, insulin receptors and glucose receptors. So basically it's globbing on to any glucose in the environment in order to grow. You know, because they're not getting oxygen and they're not getting an efficient blood supply, at least at the beginning. So they grow by uh, glucose. And in order to to take in that amount of glucose, they have to have more insulin receptors. So, you know, going back to health issues that we deal with in other ways, like diabetics or people who are pre-diabetics, which is, you know, kind of an epidemic problem in our society anyway. If you are actually eating a diet that does not feed uh, the growth of uh, insulin and glucose receptors on the cells, you're by definition not feeding a cancer cell. Right. So one of the things that you can do is actually uh, look at your diet 
you know, definitely taking out any added concentrated sweets, which are just in just about everything. Um, But, uh, you know, eating a low glycemic, low sugar diet is one of the best ways. And one of the things that you're in, in absolute control of, you know, you absolutely can control what you choose to eat. So we eliminate sugars, sweeteners, and food, foods made with flour. Right, right. So do you recommend the ketogenic? I'm not trying to jump on the ketogenic bandwagon here, but ketogenic diet with intermittent fasting maybe? Would you recommend something that way? That is something that's out there. And to tell you the truth, um, I, I'm like you. I'm just a little cautious. We go through diet fabs. Right. I, I mean... That's just the way people are wired. And I'm not sure that the ketogenic thing is not just a new fad diet. Now, there are components well, I mean, of the keto. It's been around a while. It, 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 the high fat hasn't, but the Atkins diet, and the low carbohydrate, medium protein fat diet has been around for a while. But it, it, the ketogenic, there's a lot of people jumping on the ketogenic bag wagon. And first of all, there's a lot of Mark doing it right. And uh, but I, I'm thinking for as far as but that's a whole other rabbit hole that I don't want to go down today because uh, we still have a lot to cover. But I, I'm thinking that you know we want to starve out the sugars, the sweeteners, the foods with flowers. Uh, we want to basically go to an alkaline, re- make our diet as alkaline as possible, and remove the acidic part of the diet, which. You know, that's, in my opinion, that's the best diet for cancer is alkaline, high alkaline, low acidic diet. And that involves, you know, eliminating sugars, a lot of vegetables, greens, basically adjust your pH in your body down and you'll starve out the cancer, in my opinion. But I could, you know, I haven't dug that deep into this and I'm not a big fan of the word diet. Uh, so I kind of, it's, it's more of a lifestyle to me. I mean, if you, if you went on Google right now and entered diet plus cancer, 90% of what you're going to see are people advocating a ketogenic diet. Right. Well, I mean, Dr. And, Mercola, and I'm not saying that it's wrong. Right. I'm just Dr. saying Mercola's that. Dr. got a book called Fat for Fuel and he talks about cancer in there and it's, and it has some valid points. It, I mean, it's a, it has its place, but. To your point, it doesn't mean you go around eating eating grass-fed butter raw and saying, hey, I'm on a ketogenic diet. That's my, that's my opinion. You know, some of these ketonian people get a little crazy with their grass-fed butter. Yeah, they get very militant. So, you know, if you think about that cancer patient that you see pictures of, an emaciated cancer patient, yeah, they've lost weight, but it's not, it, it, you know, they've lost vital... Um, healthy muscle and tissue in that weight loss. So helping somebody get their nutrition back and get sound, healthy, nourishing nutrition back, if you did nothing else, would be the foundation of where to start. And that's what I was going to say. I mean, we could talk about eliminating sugars and carbs and diet, but radiation and chemotherapy together destroy the gut. Exactly, exactly. And someone's ability to eat. Right. Actually, that's a huge thing is that the, la- the loss of appetite. You know, food, do- food doesn't, there's no, there's no enjoyment in food. It doesn't taste good. It's not appetizing. So in treatment and after treatment, 
finding ways to stimulate the appetite is a really important piece. Okay. Okay. Let me plug this book. And I, uh, I've, I've heard this author, but I'm not plugging for her because I have, I've ever met her or anything, but I'm plugging for her because I found her book while I was in treatment. And it's, it's a wonderful book. It's called um, One Bite at a Time. Okay. And uh, the author is Rebecca Katz, and she's done a lot of work on um, like a, a cancer-fighting kitchen and, and healthy, nutritious food that, that actually is anti-cancer you know, and pro-health. Right. And one of the things she talks about in here is that one of the first things that is, is getting back to stimulating someone's appetite. And so sometimes you need to take a recipe and she, so if you think about our taste buds, our taste buds respond to different parts of our meal. So some are going to respond to fat, some are, you know, acid, salty, and sweet. So maybe, you know, like if making a soup, you might have to salt something with good quality sea salt. But if you, if you salted something that might stimulate some taste buds. You know, like uh, she recommends putting, uh, sometimes adding something that's sweet might might stimulate the sweet taste buds. So you can look at, at your food and making your your meals healthy because all too often people are like eating candy because they crave sweets, which, you know, we've already established. You don't want that to be, you know, part of your diet. But there are ways to eat sweeter foods to, to um, stimulate your appetite without it being sugar-laden and unhealthy for you. And so it's a really great resource for people. It's called One Bite at a Time. And I just use it now because it's got these really beautiful, tasty, healthy recipes that just taste good. And you don't even have to you know, be dealing with cancer, but, um, but just really beautiful meals and, and using fresh ingredients that in and of themselves have anti-cancer properties. Cool. That's awesome. I'll put that in the show notes, the book title. Also, you know, in terms of healing the gut, looking at, you know, uh, there are some specific things that functional medicine practitioners do to help people heal gut issues. So um, the fact is, is, is that um, uh, there's many things you can do to, to do that. But, but, you know, working with a functional medicine practitioner, anybody who's a functional medicine practitioner is going to be based in how to heal your gut, because that's kind of the the guiding principle of the work that we do. Uh, yeah, I mean, all this, I don't remember who it was. Hippocrates, all disease begins in the butt, in the gut, and not in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> all disease begins in the butt. <laughs> well, there are some people who think that's well, I'm a walking disease because I'm a pain in the butt. <laughs> oh, snap. Um, <laughs> Save me. Socrates, you know, yeah, all disease. Yeah, it's one of yeah. those one of those Greek uh, all disease begins in the gut. I mean, uh, and it's true. I mean, if our gut's not healthy, the rest of us have, the rest of our body has issues. Right. And I'm I'm gonna right. get off the gut and the butt. Oh, well, I'll tell you, it's really funny. Even as a nurse, before I studied <sighs> gut health, um, if anybody's ever been in the hospital and you ever, you know, feel a little embarrassed or, you know, feel like the nurse is nagging you because they're always asking, did you poop? Did you poop? Did yeah. you poop? There's a reason for that. Right. Because believe me, you may not want to talk about it until you have a poop for a few days right. and then it rules your life. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it really uh, comes up in many ways. But, uh, but yeah, gut health and healing the gut and... Uh, Finding recipes that heal the gut um, is really like a basic that you can do with anybody. Uh, um, glutamine as an amino acid is really helpful. Right. 
I put glutamine in my after in my post workout shake as just as a regular. It's an amazing gut healer. Right, L-glutamine is is an amino acid, and it's and it's what uh, what the whole GI tract uses, right. you know, to um, uh, for tissue for building its health. But I will tell you, and this is something that will come up if anybody. Uh, brings it up with their uh, oncologist. Glutamine is actually a really controversial issue in the whole world of cancer hmm. because um, cancer cells use glutamine as as a source. So some people feel that supplementing with glutamine is also supporting cancer cells as well as healthy cells. So I've actually been doing a lot of reading on that. And, That's interesting. And so, and I will tell you that I don't have an absolute answer, but one of the integrative oncologists that I follow did a, a podcast on this recently about whether or not people should be substituting with um, L-glutamine. And what she's basically saying is L-glutamine is the body is going to access L-glutamine anyway. That's, you know, we need L-glutamine. It's the most abundant. And actually when someone's cachectic, when they're losing muscle mass, that's releasing L-glutamine. So the body is going to use that. So the body has got an infinite store of L-glutamine. Uh, it, it breaks down body tissue to get it sometimes, but it's got an infinite store so she doesn't feel like uh, L-glutamine is going to be harmful right. for cancer patients, with the exception of if someone's got some type of neurological or brain cancer, they should not be supplementing with L-glutamine because it passes the blood-brain barrier pretty quickly. But all I'm saying is this is one of those things that doctors you know, can go one way or another. So it's something that... Uh, but I will also tell you that when someone is uh, experiencing those... Um, mouth sores and the sores throughout their GI tract, which is what happens when you're getting chemo and, and radiation. L-glutamine is, is you know, making a, a, a mouthwash of L-glutamine and some vitamin E uh, can actually be very healing and help heal the mucosa so someone actually can eat. It's one of the main reasons that, that people uh, don't eat while they're in chemotherapy is because their entire GI tract has broken out in sores that um, and sores in the mouth, but it actually goes throughout the entire GI tract. Mm. And L-glutamine is something that you can uh, you know mix up and just like put on topically. You don't even necessarily yeah, have to swallow it, That's but you can use it as as you know like a swish in the mouth. Right. But it's it's actually very healing to the mucosa. Hmm. Now I'm going to go. I want to go into before we because I got one question at the end, which came from a. a, a off my Facebook group, but I want to talk about like some of the anti-inflammatory herbs and nutrients. Uh, we've already discussed uh, Mariva, curcumin. I'm a big proponent of mushroom extracts as an anti-inflammatory. Some of them are like reishi is a good one for reishi is an amazing anti-inflammatory. Shiitake. Uh, cordyceps are a great anti-inflammatory. Cordyceps are actually an immune stimulator or acts as an immune stimulator by raising the cancer and fighting T cells. So this is going into a weird area. This is going into the more, you know, things that medicinal mushrooms have a huge role in, in the body as an anti-inflammatory and that's basically what we need to do is keep the inflammation out of the body during this time and after chemo and radiation treatment is, I mean, we need to lower the, the inflammation, right? 
Well, it's interesting because mushrooms uh, are really big in terms of, I, I learned really early on, even white button mushrooms, it doesn't yeah. have to be anything exotic. You know, even like two white button mushrooms a day acts as an aromatase inhibitor, which is actually another way to um, break that um, signaling for cancer cells. Okay. You know, aromatase actually creates more estrogen in our body. It's a pathway that creates more estrogen. So if you have an estrogen-sensitive cancer, which many breast cancers are, um, it's one of the things that anybody who's gone through any staging, they'll tell you if you've got a a hormone-positive or hormone-negative cancer. Okay. And um, if you have a hormone-positive cancer, something like mushrooms can, um, it's an aromatase inhibitor and aromatase actually converts other hormones in the body to estrogen. Okay. So it's one way of decreasing your estrogen load. So if you think about the fact that doctors put you on estrogen blockers, which is what tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors are, those are the two prescription uh, treatments for people with breast cancer is they'll put you on tamoxifen if you're premenopausal and they'll put you on an aromatase inhibitor if you're postmenopausal. Okay. So basically, um, uh, and the aromatase inhibitors downregulate the estrogen cells throughout your body. And we have estrogen cells in all the tissues and bones of our body. So they're actually giving you an aromatase inhibitor to try to decrease the um, conversion of other hormones to estrogen. Well, mushrooms are a natural aromatase inhibitor. Right. So I'm going to go through a few things here. We've talked about eat real food, alkaline, acidic versus acidic, make your body alkaline. Which is basically fruits and vegetables. Um, Red meat is more acidic. Vegetables are more alkaline. Another way to alkalize your body is to add uh, half a teaspoon of baking soda to a cup of water and drink it in between your meals. It'll help alkalize your body. Uh, Don't, I mean... Bob's Red Mill is the best, in my opinion, Bob's Red Mill is the best baking soda on the market. But to, to each his own. But uh, we want to, also we want to keep hydrated through all this. I mean, stay hydrated through all, through your, even through the radiation and the chemo, you want to keep water as your source of, of hydration. Right. There's just not really any drink out there, any manufactured drink that is going to be good for you. Right. You know, vitamin water is basically soda. Right. So basically to hydrate yourself, the the news is, is that there's not really anything that is going to help you as much as water. We as a whole do not drink enough water and we drink a lot of other drinks that are carbonated or sweeter or whatever. But the fact is, is that I'm part of a gym and she's a very, the woman who runs it is very healthy and she ordered, we have um, Iron Man coming here within the month. It's a big, oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a big thing here in Hawaii. Right. And, and she's actually a triathlete competing in it. And she was like, yeah, I ordered these sports drinks because I thought the athletes would want it. And then she looks at it and it's like high fructose corn syrup right. and, you know, high in carbohydrates. Like I didn't have any idea, but it's one of these quote unquote healthy sports drinks. Well, these healthy sports drinks aren't healthy. And I'm, uh, and there's just nothing that I found that substitutes for water. And everyone's always trying to find something. And, and the fact is, is that water is water. And what I do recommend and what I do myself is, is two things. Uh, you can put slices of fruit in your water to give it a little bit of flavor. I use pineapple, but you can use berries or lemons or limes or whatever. 
so that can uh, give water a little flavor. But also, um, really important, like even if you do drink a lot of water, you can actually overhydrate and flush electrolytes out of your system. So if you drink a lot of water, I think Noon is one brand, It's but they're like little effervescent electrolyte tablets you can put in your water. And sometimes those are flavored like lemon lime or whatever. Okay. Um, but that, that can give it a little bit of flavor. And it can also give you electrolytes because you don't want to drink so much that you're flushing essential electrolytes out right. of your system either. But, you know, they're, they're, I have not found, and if somebody has found it, please text Tom or text me and let me know. I have not found a drink that is healthy for you that's going to substitute water. And I, I've heard people say, oh my God, but I hate water. Well, you know, it, it, some of that's a little bit of a, a, of a retraining to what you go to. I'm at the point now that if I don't drink water, I don't feel right. But it took me a long time to get there. I would just have to, you know, set a container out and say, after I've drank two or three of these, then I can have whatever, you know, iced tea or whatever. But if, if I don't start with water, if I try starting with something sweeter and then drinking water later in the day, I can't get enough water in. So I always have to make sure I take the water first. And then switch to like iced tea or something. But those are really the only two things that I drink anymore. I used to be addicted to Diet Dr. Pepper. I used to drink like six or seven a day, uh, you know, and it took, and I, I didn't, it, of all the dietary changes I've ever made, that was the one that freaked me out was giving up Diet Dr. Pepper. I, I could give up anything else, but I was like, don't take my soda away from me. Well, now it's, you know, it, it took a little bit of retraining, you know, it took a few months, but, but now I don't even... I think I took a sip a couple months ago and it was horrible, you know, but, um, but it, it, you know, we, we have gotten to the point where we're used to eating and drinking such concentrated sweet things that our, our bodies kind of get used to it. So it does take a little bit of retraining, but, um, but switching to water is probably the best thing that people can do. And some other areas that we, you know, that you need support in, I mean, I think are necessary are, First of all, find a, a loving, supportive community and healthy relationships. These are just, you know, stress management. And also research, learn, study, and don't be afraid to ask. The, the community part, this is something that I, I am incredibly passionate about. And really, whether you're a cancer patient or somebody who loves a cancer patient or right. somebody who knows a cancer patient, there's a couple things that I want to say. Cancer is isolating. It's, it's an isolating disease. You are taken out of your life and thrown into this, this world of surgery, chemotherapy, treatments, whatever, that have horrible side effects. You don't have the energy to be with people sometimes. And sometimes you're not with healthy, you know, like I had some really unhealthy relationships in my life. And one of the things that cancer did was I sat down and was like, do I really have the time and energy for this bullshit? And the answer was no. And right. I had to end some really toxic relationships. But even if it's not that to that extreme, cancer is isolating. So I'm speaking to cancer patients. I, I referred to, there's a phenomenon that I referred to called the casserole experience, where I've had cancer twice. And both times in that initial period of time when I came home from the hospital, yeah, you know, I had a group of acquaintances and friends who showed up with the casserole. They feel good about themselves. They've done something. They've been supportive. And then they go on with their lives. Many of them were work acquaintances. So they went back to work. They got caught up in their busy lives. And I never saw them again. Or I heard from them once every two months or something. You know, and the, and the thing is, 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 that, is that having that support system, it changes while you're in therapy. 
people that you thought would be there sometimes aren't. Sometimes people you'd never expect show up. And patients will fall into this trap too. It's like, oh, great, my my treatment's over. Now, it, you know, and people will say, oh, you must be so happy, you know, or don't you feel great? Or don't you appreciate every moment of life now that you've gone through cancer? It's like, you know what? Not necessarily. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with you if you get to the, I mean, you get to the end of treatment, the active treatment, I'm talking about the surgery, the chemo, the radiation, you, you, so you get, you think that's the finish line. And then all of a sudden you don't need that anymore. And hallelujah. But then you're, you're in a disfigured body. Often you, you don't feel great. You, you're malnourished. You, you're exhausted. You're emotionally all over the place. You don't get to the finish line like, hallelujah, I love every minute of my life. Right. That's, that's just not, we may think that's what we should feel, but it's not really the experience of most people. And I just really want to throw that out there because I really think that's a huge stumbling block. Uh, I saw a, a client last week, she got to the end of treatment and she isolated in her house for seven months. She went through a major depression and she didn't know who to talk to. She didn't even know how to talk to people because everyone thought, well, she just must be feeling great now. The treatment's over. She, you know, the physical and emotional letdown was so profound. This woman isolated herself for seven months. Wow. And so for her, when she called me to come in to see me, she's like, I finally have to face this. So her coming to see me was a huge step towards turning that around. But I want to say that even to people who are supporting cancer patients or people who have gone through it, I call it the tyranny of happiness. You know, it's like for you to say to somebody, oh my God, you must feel great. And then, or to say what's wrong with you because you don't. That's just a burden that, that, that really is an unrealistic expectation. This is such a complex thing that the best that we can do, and even as health coaches or people that work with clients, is just really give them a place to start talking about what it's really like because cancer sucks. Let's just, let's just call it that. Cancer right. sucks. And there are no good options and there are no good treatments. And you've just gone through a period of time and treatment where every decision in your life feels like a life and death decision. Right. Is cancer going to kill me? And cancer sucks. And there's a whole lot of ways people feel about that. And it takes years to process that. It takes years to to recover from that. And that recovery is as much emotional as it is physical. So just, just being that person who can listen to somebody or pick up a movie and go watch a movie with a friend that, you know, that just finished treatment and not expect them to entertain you. Those kind of things can, can be profoundly supportive and healing. Yeah. 100%. You know, and it's, it's just, it's just one of those things. I call it the tyranny of happiness. You know, it's like, you've just gone through hell, so you don't have to feel happy. And one other thing, one of the things is, is that, you know, then I'll stop because I could go on about this for a long time. (laughs) We don't live in a world in our culture. We don't live in a culture where people handle anger very well. Right. It's either people are afraid of anger, it's very explosive, it feels very destructive, or you're told not to experience it at all. We don't have, most people don't have healthy ways of handling anger, and other people are afraid of anger. We live in a world that people are afraid of anger. Anger is a very healthy emotion. The way people express it isn't always healthy, but anger is a normal emotion. But if you take that and, and you know, believe that, which is, I do believe that, even more so, women 
are not ever told in their entire lives that they have a right to be angry and express it. So you take something like breast cancer, there's anger. There is anger. There's existential anger. There's real anger. You're angry. And and that is absolutely normal and absolutely expected. But if you're one of those people that believes that, that, you know, that has never learned that anger is okay, that can just become a whole emotional prison that you live in. You know, and, and, you know, I'll have women come in very collapsed and they'll, they'll say, oh, they're so sad or they're so overwhelmed or they're so this, you know, they're very quiet, meek, mild manner to their voice and then i'll say to them yeah aren't you pissed and they'll just like no no i'm not it's like really because i i am you know and sometimes just giving people the permission can open up a whole new world and they may not be they they may you know that tyranny of happiness they may not be happy and grateful they may be pissed off and they may be pissed off for a long time but that's okay and, and as health coaches and as people who are helping people in recovery, it's really important for us to look at our own values right. about that. Are you uncomfortable? Are you always telling people, oh, you feel better? Oh, don't feel that way. Oh, it'll get better. Well, that's just a way of minimizing someone's experience. So as, as people who are around people dealing with anger, it's really important to know where you're coming from. To say, oh, things will get better. It's, it's not so bad that's that's not helpful you may think you may mean it in a very helpful way but it's not okay so anyway i'll I'll leave there (laughs) we could do a whole issue on that all right i want to talk about this is a question that was asked for from my facebook group Uh, i was reached when i put this topic up there about breast cancer and 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 the questions people had one of them was a, a person who had lymphedema in her legs after breast cancer her question is, how does she deal with it? One of my responses was, and was first of all, we need to keep treating the the inflammation. True. But I'm not, you know, I don't know. I didn't really, at the time that she asked, I said, Let, you know, like anything in your body, inflammation is going to cause many things. And I think, but I want to talk to you about lymphedema before we go today. I'm really glad that you bring that up because that is a very common, it is, it is actually an issue that women deal with. And so just a, a little bit of uh, history about that. Lymphedema, by definition, means the buildup of fluid. Edema means the buildup of fluid. Okay. And lymphedema means the buildup of fluid around or um, because of lymph nodes. Okay. And it's particularly relevant to women with breast cancer because one of the leading causes of lymphedema is surgery and radiation. So if you think about lymphedema, the basis of that being your lymph nodes, we have lymph nodes throughout our body. You know, most of us are, are familiar when you, when you get sick and, you know, you feel for that enlarged neck, right. you know, the bumps in your neck, that's, that's because of enlarged lymph nodes. Okay. We also have them in our chest, in our back, in our axilla, in our groin. We have them throughout our body. And the purpose of, of lymph nodes is to, uh, it's, it's kind of like they act as channels. You know, fluid flows through the lymph nodes and it's a way of removing waste from the cells. Okay. You know, from the cellular environment. So, but the thing about lymph nodes is that if you think about it, 
they're not, they're not like arteries, you know, like, like the arteries in our body to move fluid through arteries, we have a pump, which is our heart. So it's actually a pump that's moving the fluid. Veins don't have an active pump system. We have valves to move fluid back to our heart and lymph. Uh, the lymph system is a passive system. There is no pump that that moves lymph through your body. Okay. It's, it's actually, the, if, if anything, the pump is actually the muscles that surround the lymph nodes act as a, as a secondary or more passive pump. So what happens in breast cancer is that if you have surgery, uh, they will do a lymph node biopsy. Because what's really important about cancer is A, to know that you have it, and B, to know whether or not it's spread through your body, which is called metastasis. So, you know, when you hear metastatic cancer, that's because the cancer cell has moved from the original site to another part of the body and taken up shop in another part of the body, like, you know, the liver or the lungs or, you know, other parts of the body. There is no other cell in the body. Interestingly enough, there's no other cell in the body that will get up and move to another organ system in the body and take over except cancer. You know, so that's the problem is whether you have it and whether or not it has spread to other parts of the body. Well, in order to spread to other parts of the body, it goes through the lymph system because it's it, it, the, the body is naturally trying to take debris away from the cellular area. So one of the standard things to do is to test the lymph nodes to see if it's spread to the lymph nodes, which is a measure or an indicator of, of your chance of metastasis. There was a time 20, 30 years ago that they would do a massive lymph node resection where they would take you know, 30, 50, 100 lymph nodes out. And one of the, uh, you know, and, and so basically you've taken out a whole, a whole organ system, basically, I guess. We never thought of it that way, but you've taken out a whole system. So the lymph has no way of, of uh, leaving that area. So it builds up. Therefore, the edema part, the lymph okay. edema. So that's, that's, what, that's what lymphedema is. Now, fortunately, they've gotten to the point now where it's, it's, Pretty unusual for them to take out that number of lymph nodes. Um, they will take out however many lymph nodes they think might be involved or have um, cancerous cells in them, which is something that they test uh, in surgery. Many women will uh, they'll test the sentinel node, the sentinel node being the, the lymph node that's closest to the tumor. And, um, and then if that sentinel node is, is negative, then they're pretty sure that the rest of the lymph nodes aren't involved, but that if that sentinel node is involved, then they're going to try to figure out how many other lymph nodes around it are involved. Okay. So there's not really a magic number, but generally the fewer the lymph nodes that are removed, the better. There's not a magic number of like greater than this amount, you're going to get lymphedema or less than this amount, you're not. It's not that precise, but basically whether it's surgery or whether it's radiation, which is actually a form of burning the tissue, surgery is removing lymph nodes. Radiation can block lymph nodes because uh, of it burns the, the actual tissue and the lymph nodes. So any of those things can happen so that the, the lymph fluid that normally flows out is trapped. And that's what lymphedema is. Okay. So once you have it, so there, you know, there's a whole thing about ways to prevent lymphedema. Um, anybody who's had any surgery or radiation that involves any lymph nodes is always at risk for lymphedema. Or, and that okay. can be a lifetime. 
I mean, it's not necessarily just after surgery. I mean, I'm at risk for lymphedema and I could get it in 10 years. So there are certain things that, that like I don't get blood pressures taken. Uh, my, my tumor mass was on the right side. I had two lymph nodes removed. So I don't get blood pressures on my right side. I don't let them put in IVs or draw blood from my right side. You know, I don't do any of those things that increase the chance of lymphedema. But the fact is, is that it happens anyway. And it can happen in the groin. You know, the lymph nodes in the groin can be blocked. So it can cause lower extremity lymphedema right. like this person is, is talking about. And I'm not sure if she had breast cancer, if she had some kind of trauma or medication or insult to that area. Right. But once you have it, it's, it's, uh, you're always at risk for, for having it. And once you have it, there's a, the best that I can tell you is if you're experiencing lymphedema is to find a lymphedema expert to help you treat it. Because like in my case, I had to go through my husband and I learned a form of, of massage to kind of uh, massage the lymph nodes to, to get them working again. Some people have to go through like compression wraps. It can be very debilitating. Lymphedema is, is a really debilitating complication. But I believe you can go online. I believe there's like a, a lymphedema network. So you can actually look up lymphedema therapist. And if you're struggling with it, I would definitely recommend finding um, a practitioner who specializes in lymphedema management because it's a specialty. And it can be very debilitating. All right. Well, this ends our three-part series on breast cancer. And we thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, this has been... A big one, and I hope it's uh, helpful. Uh, and I hope my, people. My heart goes out to those with breast cancer, and those with cancer. This is uh, it's the big C word, and it's not a good one. My heart goes out to them, and anything that either of us, Deborah, myself, can do, you know, you're welcome to reach out to us. I appreciate uh, Deborah specializing in this side, and uh, so. I, it, it's a tough disease. It's like I, like I said in episode two, this isn't like a heart attack, you know, where you, they have to make a decision right now. You have a choice and you need to step up and ask your options and you need to research your options and you need to take care of it. Well, I'll just say in closing, that is a, that is a, a huge thing is that and even the medical system will do this. They'll give you a diagnosis of cancer. And then it's like, oh my God, you've got to do something like in the next two weeks. Right. But cancer is not an acute illness like a heart attack. Cancer is a chronic illness. So taking that time to step back, catch your breath, you know, do some thinking, do some research, find out you know, what your options are is really crucial. And even doctors will be like, you have to be in surgery next week. Well, that is not the case. Right. That is not what cancer is. You do need to treat it. You right. know, that I'm not saying don't treat it, but it's not an emergency. But we're so used to everything medical being an emergency, but, but this is not one of those things. Your, your cancer cells, your, your cancer tumor is not going to change fundamentally in the next two or three weeks that's been building for the last 20 years. So taking, taking a step back, consulting people, calling, you know, calling me, calling integrative practitioners, finding out, coming up with a treatment plan and a whole treatment plan, not just the one that's going to treat the tumor, but the one that's going to like sustain you after treatment. I mean, setting these things in place before you get started can, can make a world of difference 
in how well you get through this, how strong you feel, you know, how, how you come out the other end. And the other end is the rest of your life. You know, you're, once you get cancer, you're never cancer free. You know, you always have in the back of your mind that, that cancer can come back. So after the active treatment, we're talking about health practices for the rest of your life. Right. 100%. You know, taking that time, you know. Research, learn, study, and don't be afraid to ask. And let me just, um, you know, let me just uh, throw out my email. If anybody listens to this and has any questions or wants to talk, my my um, email is radicalhealthrn at gmail.com. You know, my website is mindbodynutritionrn.com. And um, yeah, if anybody has any questions or specific questions that, you know, that have come up listening to this, please feel free to, you know, contact me or send me an email. They'll be in the show notes. I will put that in the show notes for you. And I appreciate you taking the time for these three episodes. Oh, thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate all the, all the work you do. You're really you're really committed to this education piece, and I really well, you appreciate know, that. I, I just want people to be educated, and I know I want people to know they have a choice, and I want people to know that how to do this and not do it the wrong way. Well, I think it comes down to empowering people. So much of our healthcare does not leave people feeling empowered to change any aspect of their health. But, but I mean, I think that's, that's what you're doing It's really empowering people to, you know, to, we live in an information age in the presence of all this information that, you know, people don't feel empowered to, you know, to ask their doctors questions. Or God forbid, find another doctor if you've got a dismissive, rude doctor who's not listening to you. You know, it's like, find somebody else. There's a lot of doctors out there. There's a lot of practitioners. But empowering people, and that does, it starts with what you're doing. It starts with knowing that there's a different way of doing things. And I think that's what you're doing with these podcasts. And I so appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining in today with the Rebel Health Coach, Tom Underwood. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you can catch all the episodes. With desire and commitment, you can implement a lifestyle of wellness and fitness. For the support, encouragement, and tools you need to be successful, visit TomUnderwood.net.